Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the debut grand opening of Mad Villain Bistro Bed and Breakfast Bar Grill Cafe Lounge on the Water. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Terry Talks Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Clayton Terry. And I'm Ryan Terry. And as we promised last episode, today we will be counting down our top five movies of 2021. Getting a little more strict this year than we usually do, just talking about the top five. But hopefully that'll allow us to kind of go into more detail. And you know with these movies, these are the highest of praise, the ones we would recommend the most. Yeah, and I think we should just get right into it. So maybe a um, bit of forewarning of some of the movies we didn't get to see. I know me and Ryan both came up with a list of movies we just didn't get to. I don't know, Ryan, do you want to go through your list first? Yeah, I should just say, like, um, I think in 2020, uh, 2020 especially, it was, I had a really hard time paying attention to movies. And, like, yeah. the fact that I couldn't go to a theater made that, like, the experience of trying to find and sit down and watch new movies difficult and then this year i was finally able to sort of get back in the swing of things by the end uh theaters being open helped but uh Mm -hmm. yeah i definitely missed a lot especially at the beginning of the year that i need to go back and check out and uh i have six movies here uh tick tick boom dune west side story licorice pizza red rocket and juice and black messiah and i'll probably say dune and licorice pizza are the ones that i was most excited for the ones i wish i could go back and watch before this but oh well i mean we talked about it with the album podcast but there's always movies that get added to my list that we don't talk about in the podcast just because i see them six months later or six years later you know yeah (laughs) yeah so my list would include um pig with nicholas cage red rocket mass worst person in the world harder they fall nine days benedetta tatane uh, Summer of Soul, the documentary directed by Questlove, Flea, and Ridley Scott's Last Duel, which I actually started today and then fell asleep 15 minutes in. And I was like, well, I guess I'm not watching that before the podcast. <laughs> that, that votes well. <laughs> yeah, right? I if, totally if that's forgot about the, Pig. Yeah. I figured if that's the case, it's probably not going to be in my top five anyway. So, mm-hmm. Do you remember when he uh, when he tweeted... Like, oh, people just don't want to watch Last Duel because they're using their iPhones. Oh, did he? <laughs> yeah, or he, it was an interview or something because the movie mm-hmm. bombed. Yeah, I don't want to slander that movie because a lot of people I respect really, really like it. And mm-hmm. I haven't honestly seen it, obviously. But um, yeah, maybe further down on my list now uh, behind some of these other ones to see soon. Yeah, I'm so excited for it. I just thought that was a funny funny thing I saw. Yeah. Awesome. So I did get to see a few more movies than Ryan just because I have more free time or maybe I don't care about some of my responsibilities that I have as much as (laughs) Ryan does. So I kind of wanted to run through my 10 through 6 super quick just to get more recommendations out there and just to kind of capture how I feel in this moment uh, looking back at 2021. If you want to see my 11 through 20, you can go look on my letterboxd. I'll put a link to the list in the description of this podcast episode. So if you're curious, if you're looking for more movie recommendations, you can find that there. But real quick, uh, my 10 through 6, working backwards from 10, is Last Night in Soho, 
Luca, Encanto, which is probably my favorite music of the year, or uh, tied for first, I'll say, without uh, spoiling anything, French Dispatch, and In the Heights. So that is my 10 through 6. Uh, Ryan, I'm curious also, how did you feel about movies in 2021 in general from what you were able to see? I think looking at the field in general, I, I, it was probably a pretty good year, but I don't mm-hmm. think the volume of great films was as high as pre-COVID. So like Interesting. thinking back to like 2018 or 2019, um, this is just, again, with what, what I have seen and then what I know is out there. And maybe it has less to do with the fact that those films aren't being made or aren't being released, but more to do with like those films aren't blockbuster films and mm-hmm. the Oscars matter even less now than they ever did. So it's not the Oscars who are, it, it doesn't feel like the Oscars are the ones deciding right now, which films get attention. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. I would say. I really enjoyed a lot of movies this year, but no year has hit the peak of like 2016, 2017 when we were seeing like La La Land, Moonlight, Arrival, Blade Runner 2049, um, Call Me By Your Name, stuff like that. Nothing's hit that high for me since then. So I guess it's been about four or five years. Uh, We'll see what 2022 holds, but um, that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah, I'm hoping hoping things level out a bit. I think... Like, the fact that Endgame came out, in a weird way, was the death of a lot of franchises. Because Marvel is still making movies, but a lot of their most acclaimed stuff is on streaming services. Uh, COVID as well. Like, the fact that streaming services hold so much weight, and it's basically the only way most people watch movies now, is, um, in a way, it's sort of limiting the film landscape and what's getting seen. But it's also been able to shine a light on more experimental films and that aren't even maybe not experimenting into form but or in content but rather in like length and the way that the film is presented and whatnot like i think we have two films on the list that very much show how there are very much films that would only be made in the streaming era yeah yeah that's totally true and i was i'm looking at my list and again not to get ahead of us but um I feel like there's a good balance of kind of smaller budget, more indie movies that maybe will get some Oscar attention and the big hundreds of millions of dollars budgeted theatrical experiences that we definitely missed in 2020 and we're kind of getting uh, this past year in 2021. Mm -hmm. So I think it was, I think it is overall a warm start, but I think it'll be a little bit before we get back to the like juggernaut years that the 2010s felt like yeah i would agree with that or or everything spread out more evenly across all the streaming platforms so one thing doesn't stick out as much as it used to yeah definitely there isn't like one singular prestige show or movie or whatever it might be Mm -hmm. great so i think with that we'll start moving into our top five so ryan's number five is ahead on my list so like we usually do with the exception of 2020, I think that year things were kind of a surprise to the other person, which was uh, fun, but makes the podcast kind of repetitive in a way. So we're going back to the method of talking about a movie once it is in the person whose list it is highest. So 
Ryan's number five appears higher on my list, so we're going to hold off on that. We're going to talk about my number five, which is Drive My Car. So this is a Japanese drama directed and co-written by, um, oh gosh, Rasuki Hamaguchi. I feel like I did okay with that. <laughs> um, and it is based on a Murakami short story of the same name. And this film follows a character who's an actor named Kafuku as he is helping to produce a stage play of uh, Chekhov's Uncle Vanya. So I saw this movie pretty recently. Um, I actually went and saw it in Ithaca because there's no like art house theater that was playing this movie uh, in Syracuse just um, a few days ago. And this film kind of touches on grief, I would say, but in a way that isn't tragedy porn like you'll see in a lot of movies i think i like manchester by the sea but i would definitely describe that movie as kind of this fixation on the uh almost unrealistically tragic not to say those kind of things don't happen but they're not as relatable as um what this movie touches on and it kind of shows us how stories and fiction can help us grieve but also can trap us trap us in the past so i'm purposely kind of being vague because i don't i think this is a movie a lot of people haven't seen but basically we have this main character um kafuku who can kind of exist in a past and avoid processing his grief and it isn't until he's assigned a driver and the kind of ritual he goes through to exist in the past is challenged by the fact that he has another person in the car and these two characters begin talking and they both kind of start processing their own trauma and I just found the movie just really beautifully honest in how it talks about grief and loss and it doesn't try and tell you that there's a reason that you're going to go through loss it doesn't show it as a test of strength it just tells you it happens and it fucking sucks but we have to as people move on and keep living and it's in some ways never going to get easier but in other ways you just have to you just have to do it you have to press on and i really appreciated that i will say this movie is three hours long and the opening credits come on, no joke, 50 minutes into the movie. <laughs> and despite the fact that there were only like four other people in the theater, me and my partner both like audibly laughed when it was like written by this person. <laughs> it was like, wait, we've just, we just watched a whole movie and now they're showing us the opening credits. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so it's definitely not for everyone, but if you're willing to sit down uh, and experience like a three hour think piece Japanese movie you're reading subtitles and whatnot it is so worth it and so rewarding and really unlike any other movie I saw this year yeah I've um I'd heard of this movie but only vaguely only of its existence and that it was really good mm -hmm. and uh Murakami is an author I've been wanting to get i um, wanting to read for a little bit mm -hmm. I have a friend who's uh, very much into him 
And I understand his stories try and capture a sort of like malaise or a ennui yeah. in daily life. Which I, I always find, I always love, we, we sort of call them movies where nothing happens, where it's just like <laughs> yeah. snapshots of someone's life, and I always really appreciate storytelling like that. It feels very grounded, and it's surprisingly difficult to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that's I, I've been uh, very much interested in the content of this, of the author for a while, and I will definitely, uh, when I get a three-hour block in my day... <laughs> check this out yeah i I definitely recommend it i think it's going to get some awards attention so maybe some people start talking about it more hopefully it'll appear on a streaming service and then uh that'll be that'll be good because i want more people to see and experience this movie and this uh story from murakami awesome so with that we're already into our top four ryan do you want to say your uh number four movie uh, yeah, let me make sure I have the order right. <laughs> because I can't, I now can't remember which movie I had as my fourth. My, I think my three and four are pretty interchangeable in my mind. But at the time, at, at the time, at right as recording, my number four is The French Dispatch, which uh, you'd already mentioned being in your top ten. Um, mm-hmm. This is a 2021 uh, comedy film by Wes Anderson is an anthology film told from the perspective from the perspective of this uh, magazine owner and he's the owner of the magazine company and the editor uh, editing through his journalist's pieces and each short section of the film is a uh, report from one of these journalists mm-hmm. and I thought that the way the film was presented was pretty genius like it's not it's not the first story i've seen where the anthology it's not the first anthology story i've seen where it is diegetically happening like this the stories being told are diegetically stories within the (laughs) overarching narrative Mm -hmm. but the way that it sort of chooses to dive into or not dive into each given journalist the way that it explores each story and the framing devices it uses uses for each one and the ingenious way it uses color was Mm -hmm. so refreshing it's a gorgeous film and that's not surprising given given it's wes anderson but the way that the sets all bleed into one another and people can walk through entire buildings with the camera not having to be cut at all and it's just going Mm -hmm. through walls it's so interesting the blocking and the framing is always perfect uh (laughs) in a way that only wes anderson can do and i i know some people say that he's sort of self-cannibalized his own style but i think this shows that he 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 knows what he does and he does it as well as he can and you can't you can't knock any visionary creator for doing what they do at the top of their ability. Like I, I, every time I leave a Wes Anderson film, I think this guy is one of the best directors alive and he's so good, good at doing one thing and he's never going to stop doing that one thing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'm not, uh, 
I, I suppose that I'm trying to get avoid getting too deeply into the anthologies. I'll speak broad, broadly on them just because there's so much to say. But the um, the one with Tim de Chalamet and Francis McDormand was a big highlight for me. Uh, also, the last one, which is titled the uh, I believe the kidnapping of a police commissioner's son. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, just fantastic film. I love this movie. Um, I love Wes Anderson. I've seen every film of his now. I bought Bottle Rocket on Criterion Collection. So I've officially seen all of them. And it's one of the few directors that I just refuse to do a ranked list. Because I think I know what my number one would be. But after that, it's just... Who knows? It could change like any given day. I love basically all of his movies. Um, And French Dispatch some a lot of people have been saying it's the most Wes Anderson Wes Anderson movie and that is perfectly fine by me <laughs> cuz like you're saying I just love his directing I love his color choice I love how he works with actors all of it is just spot on for me yeah and it's such a huge ensemble cast and it's like you look at the poster and you're like oh my god how do you have this many characters in a movie but I really cared for like I really cared for I think that's why I mentioned the um it was, it's called the revisions to a manifesto is the one with Timothy Chalamet and mm-hmm. Francis McDormand. I mentioned that the one and those two actors, cause I love their characters a lot. I also really liked the, uh, Jeffrey Wright and his performance in the police commissioner one. Yep. Um, and the, the way that he uses color is the, the journal, like the journalistic retellings are all black and white until they focus on the subject of the piece being made. Mm-hmm. So like the last one, the whole, the piece is meant to be about food, but then it becomes totally about something else. But when it is in almost every time it is in color, with the exception of one shot of one of the characters, it is always about the food. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's like, or, or always to show contrast in comparison to a previous scene where the black and white felt. Um, and I, I remember the one in, in this scene in particular, in this story in particular, the black and white often felt claustrophobic. So if it wanted yeah. to contrast heavily from that, it would switch to color for a second or two and then switch back. It is really cool. And mm-hmm. it's perhaps on the nose but it's Wes Anderson. Everything's on the nose. That's a silly complaint. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think you won't find a. You'll be hard to find like hard pressed to find better uh, set design and cinematography. Definitely, yeah. Of all the movies I saw in 2021, I think French Dispatch was the world I most wanted to inhabit. Like I just wanted to live in this Wes Anderson movie in particular, uh, just because everything is so gorgeous and so perfectly placed and shot. It's just unlike anyone else working today. Mm -hmm. And the performances were just, they're always spot on, but here like they're not given a lot of time. So they're really forced to put a lot of personality into the characters with the time that they do have. Mm -hmm. And that's a fun challenge to see the actors work through. And in some cases, uh, marvelously, like Tilda Swinton's performance is uh, a standout. I think. Uh, I re- oh, she's so funny. Yeah, yeah. I, I like her character. So her her framing devices. She's giving her journal, uh, her uh, journalistic like 
piece as a lecture. Um, and it's, she just adds so much character to the story being told. Yeah. And Jeffrey Wright too, who Tilda Swinton's been in a few of Anderson's movies, but, uh, Jeffrey Wright, I think is a newcomer and he's, he's probably my favorite character in that movie. I think his anthology is my favorite. I don't know if you had a, had a favorite of the four, I believe there are. Uh, that one was up there. I also, they're all pretty close to each other, honestly. Like, I don't think there's any point Mm -hmm. where the movie dips and you think, oh, the last one was better, but I I really liked the manifesto one. Um, yes. But yeah, Jeffrey, I think he was by far the most likable character in the movie. Yeah, they're able to dive into like, like the story gives an excuse to dive into his own emotional state more than it does the other writers I found in the in the film. Yeah. Well, I think both of us could gush about this movie forever. Maybe we need to do a Wes Anderson focused podcast because... His movies are all just so enjoyable. No, I'd love that. That would be a blast. <laughs> that would be fun. Give me an excuse to rewatch them all. <laughs> but I think with that, we'll move into my number four, which, what else? It's got to be Dune. This was directed by Denis Villeneuve. Uh, he has done Blade Runner 2049 and uh, Sicario and what is probably my favorite movie of his, Arrival. Um, so... It felt like a natural fit for him to go on and do Dune. Uh, This stars my boy, Timothy Chalamet, and honestly just has a star-studded cast. Uh, This has appeared on everyone's top five, top ten of the year, I feel like, so really not a surprise. It was also my most anticipated of 2021 as we were um, starting the year off. It was my most anticipated of 2020, honestly, and then it got delayed because of the pandemic. I saw this in IMAX, and the screen still, even in IMAX, did not feel big enough because Denis, he's able to shoot scale in a way that just makes everything you're seeing have this level of grandeur and awe that is unlike anything else I've seen. You have this giant screen and a huge spaceship and a planet, and the spaceship still doesn't even fit within the the frame. And I think something like that is really needed to capture the scale of this story that he's trying to tell, right? I mean, Dune is one of the classic sci-fi stories. It's largely what inspired um, Star Wars, so that's been part of the difficulty in making a film adaptation of this book is so many other movies have taken aspects of this i mean a lot of people clearly point out that tatooine is just a reskin of arrakis and that's not on accident right like so many of the filmmakers we love were inspired by this novel including uh denis villeneuve but he's able to kind of transcend all of that and pick aspects from the book and bring them to life in a way that is unique and engaging and just leaves you wanting more, right? I feel like this is part one um, of the Dune story. They don't really advertise that, but it is pointed out in the first uh, shot, the title card. And I absolutely cannot wait for part two to see 
where else this story can go, where else these stunning visuals and uh, Villeneuve's amazing direction will go. Uh, this is the film that I also was most looking forward to, and I just did not find the time to sit down and watch it in full and give it my full attention. Um, yeah. Denis Villeneuve is one of my favorite directors. I think films like Blade Runner 2049 and Arrival and uh, Incendies are some of the best films made in the 2010s, maybe ever. They're, ve- mm-hmm. they're very perfect. Um, and he has such an incredible eye for landscapes and scenery um, and color. The color palettes of his films are always so so fascinating and so like consistent throughout the whole throughout mm-hmm. the film. So this is the one that I feel like I've least of an excuse to have not seen uh, by the time <laughs> of this podcast, especially because sci-fi. I love sci-fi, um, and this is the this is the sci-fi adaptation. I imagine it will slide in somewhere on my list by the by the time that I watch it, uh, at least in my head. Yeah, I'm sure it will. Knowing you, um, we also got a foundation tv show this year so it really feels like the pillars of science fiction uh both got adapted one with a bang one kind of with a fizzle i would argue oh yeah Um, i didn't even know that existed how was it not good i heard things about it that made me not want to watch it having read the book Mm -hmm. um the book jumps like between 20 and 50 years every chapter and a show does not do that obviously and it kind of inserts more drama than there is Mm -hmm. and makes characters last longer than they need to which is missing the whole point of the book in my opinion Mm -hmm. but that would be an interesting study is kind of compare that to the adaptation of dune because um obviously both pillars of the genre but then also trying to capture similar things of kind of societal level storytelling i mean more so foundation than this but uh yeah dune highly highly recommend as probably everyone who's seen it would say <laughs> and it's also fascinating as a film that has already been adapted and has attempted to be adapted numerous times um mm-hmm. like i've heard jodorowsky's dune that documentary is very good and like just imagining the film we would have gotten if jodorowsky directed it is a fascinating world to live in yeah i, I gotta watch that i still have to see incendies too so oh, incendies um, is pretty pretty insane yeah I feel like I'm right jotting down all the movies I saw and my list of movies I still need to see is just getting longer. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm limiting myself to 2021 just so I can stay sane. Yeah, yeah, right. Cool, I think with that we can move into our top three, starting with your number three, Ryan. Yeah, so my number three is uh, The Green Knight, which is, it's a 2021 medieval sort of abstract adaptation of the 14th century poem Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which stars Dave, uh, Death Patel as uh, Sir Gawain, who is a nephew of King Arthur. When the Green Knight visits, visits uh, King Arthur's castle during Christmas, he says, "Who will be?" Pre- uh, he says, "Whatever you cut, I will cut. I will chop off a year later." And mm-hmm. uh, Sir Gawain chops off his head. And then said, "Just he just puts it back on his body. Says you have a year, and then leaves. And the mm-hmm. story is him, jer- a year later, 
going back and accepting his fate uh, and finding mm-hmm. the Green Knight. And it is a gorgeous film. And I think it's a film that you could potentially see being just like another medieval epic if you don't know the background of who David Lowry is and what a type of films A24 makes. <laughs> um, so going in, I went in with two friends who had no clue what it was going to look like. And then it, when it was this weird, abstract, sort of psychological thriller, but really not type of film, it would just, it's, it's surprising in the way that it, um, the, it unfolds and it's really gorgeous and poetic. I don't, I don't think it's a meant, it's a story that's meant to be taken literally. I don't think everything you're being shown is exactly what is happening. But the way that it deals with the idea of death death, and accepting your fate and what and how someone would react to that if they were looking straight into it is mm-hmm. really, it's really affecting, I found. Like, it's just hard to watch this person go on this death trip and you know how it's going to end. There's no, yeah. there's no presumption. I mean, I don't want to say that, but as you're watching it, you don't think there's a way out of it. Like you can't, mm-hmm. you cannot imagine this person not le- leaving this story alive. And that is just a weird feeling to have to sit with for the entire length of this movie. And I think it's very strong. I think the way that it, it deals with those topics and the way that it uh, spiri- spiritualizes and mythologizes this tale is very strong. And the film is just gorgeous. It mm-hmm. has this dark green sort of muted color palette, but it does a lot with the medieval landscapes and the forests and the um, sort of weird fantasy ideas that it's pulling from where it really doesn't dive headfirst into them but when it does pull from them you can tell that it's meant to be a story that is more abstract more thematic than literal yeah to the point of how it feels the whole movie knowing like the certainty of his journey i just love that ending without going into spoilers that last line I just, oh, ate it up. Yeah, I this movie, despite not being in my top 10, I really love it. It does appear in my top 20. Um, so glad to see it on your list, Ryan. Yeah. I think I texted you, like, I got out of the theater, and I was like, this is a movie for you, so make sure you see this. Oh, yeah, no, I sort of, like, when you said that, I was like, oh, I know what type of movie this is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because, I don't know, I, I don't like to, uh, I don't like to, paint myself in a corner but it's always things like slow abstract contemplative two hour plus films that <laughs> yeah. i'm like oh you gotta check that out <laughs> yeah but yeah i i i highly recommend this if it, it it is a i don't think it's a it's a very unique film i can't think of any film that has made me feel the way this film has made me feel mm-hmm. and i that should be commended to the highest um, the highest it can, even if it's not my number one. 
also 824 is just continuing a streak that they're never gonna they're never gonna break yeah honestly kind of like Denis Villeneuve like they just don't miss like maybe they have some movies I'm not crazy about but they don't have anything that's really poorly made or really conventional in their whole catalog which I just love seeing it's a prestige studio and it's films that are hard to market which is always funny when I see a Mm -hmm. film like this which I have to assume people thought was going to be like a psychological horror thriller type thing and then it gets Mm -hmm. a 6.6 on IMDb but like an 85 meta score because people just don't know what to make of it and it's like I don't I don't blame a student they did that as well with the I don't even remember what it's called but I think it's called Lamb. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's just a movie about, like, I have to imagine it's a cr- somewhat creepy. I haven't seen it yet. I don't know if it's out yet. But um, I have to imagine it is a somewhat creepy abstract movie about sheep herders that they marketed as a horror film. And it's not a horror film. And people are going to go and get disappointed. <laughs> but it's going to be amazing. You know? Like, that's just what yeah. happens with A24. And it's sad. But it's hard to it's yeah. hard to pitch these films. It is, yeah, and I knowing a few more details than what you said about Lamb, which I don't want to spoil, it's a bonkers premise, and that definitely should have been on my movies to see, movies I wish I had seen list, mm-hmm. because I remember just every time I would see the trailer in theaters, I was like, what is this movie? I need to see it, um, and then it just kind of fell off my radar, but yeah, A24, they're never uh, boring in the sense of never conventional or mediocre in the way a lot of bigger budget movies are nowadays yeah and it feels like they're willing to give as long as they see potential in a project they're willing to give it the backing to make it yeah to make it either exist or be as good as they are and that's like it's just we need movie studios like that um Mm -hmm. and the fact that they're still doing their thing and the fact that despite having multiple awards multiple successes multiple like box office hits their still films are as weird as ever and as indie as ever, it just it makes me very happy that they're they're sticking to their guns. Yeah, me as well. And I think we can continue the conversation about A24 because my number three is also an A24 movie. And that is Come On, Come On. So this is a black and white drama film written and directed by Mike Mills. It stars Joaquin Phoenix and... Woody Norman as the kid in the story who is on the posters and in a lot of the promotional material. Also, he listens to Death Grips and his favorite Tyler, the Creator album is Cherry Bomb. So this kid's (laughs) got a future. He's very very cool cool as hell. (laughs) Exactly. A24 posted like a playlist that he curated on (laughs) Instagram and I was looking at it and I was like, this kid, he is, he's something. (laughs) The premise of this movie is that Joaquin Phoenix is a sort of an Ira Glass character where he is a radio journalist and he's going around the country interviewing kids about what they think the future is going to be like. And interspliced throughout the movie are those interviews with real kids that they actually talked to um, and got their perspectives on the future. And within that setting, you have... Uh, Joaquin Phoenix's sister has to travel away from home to deal with her mentally unstable ex-husband. It seems like he's suffering from 
bipolar disorder or some sort of other mental illness, and she basically needs to step away and prioritize him for a little bit to make sure that he's safe and taken care of, but she doesn't have anyone to watch over his her kid, uh, portrayed by Woody Norman, so she calls her brother Joaquin Phoenix's character to watch over him, and if Drive My Car is an honest portrayal of grief, I feel like this movie is a really honest portrayal of parenting. Again, it's not like overly tragic, but it also doesn't try and tell you that every single moment with your children is beautiful and poignant and worth remembering, right? The mother character has this amazing quote that I keep thinking about, and I'm just going to paraphrase it here, but basically she says that she loves her son more than she could even fathom, more than she could even imagine loving another thing that isn't a part of her. And she also cannot stand him. <laughs> like she is so utterly annoyed with uh, just his incessant talking and all of the random tics he has. Something that's hilarious about this kid is he'll act as if he's an orphan and make his make his mom pretend that he's some orphan that they picked up off the street. And just like weird shit like that that kids do. And Oh, the movie is just, it's so meaningful and so impactful. Definitely um, was the most touching thing I think I had seen this year, the one that resonated most with me emotionally. And all the actors and actresses are amazing, but Joaquin Phoenix in particular, I would say, gives the performance of his career. I really wish his first best leading actor Oscar could have been this and not Joker, even though (laughs) I I did like Joker. I feel like this movie's going to age better and stick with me more. But yeah, come on, come on. Another movie that I'm not sure if a lot of people have seen, but I would highly, highly recommend to anyone. Yeah, I hadn't even heard of this film until you came home for Christmas break. Yeah. And uh, we were talking about it a little bit. And this is my first time hearing about the premise or anything beyond what you told me then and that yeah i'm so i, I love walking Phoenix as a as an actor i love a24 yeah i, I just definitely added to the list yeah and um i sat through all the credits because i was like processing my emotions for the movie but then also they play other interviews for kids that they didn't use in the movie so you just hear more about the younger generation's f- view of what the future can hold And then on the way home, I just put on the soundtrack for the movie and just kind of continued to process my emotions. And uh, it still has stuck with me. And it didn't really move from my top three uh, since I saw it. It was uh, number two for a while, and then it fell off for a movie we'll talk about shortly. But yeah, can't recommend it enough. The A24 podcast also has an episode with Mike Mills and David Byrne. So uh, apparently... It's common knowledge uh, that Mike Mills is like obsessed with the talking heads and that he wrote this movie while just listening to Remain in Light on loop as loud as he could with headphones. Like that's his writing process. Oh, that's awesome. And hearing him and uh, David Byrne talk about the movie, but then also American Utopia and just their processes for making art and being creative was so interesting. So I'd highly recommend that podcast as well uh, if you're interested in either of those two people. That's something I wish, looking back at my list, is I wish I'd, like, really run out of my way and sought more, like, emotional slow burn films. 
mm-hmm. um, like this, or you mentioned Manchester. Um, obviously not. Like just something along those lines, where it's more slice of life, more uh, emotional. Roma, for example, that was probably my favorite or second favorite film of that year. Yeah. Um, something along those lines. Yeah, I feel like there was less of it in 2021. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe because we were not really into sitting and feeling our emotions because we had just done that for a year and a half in our own homes. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think of the films I can think of, this one uh, was the one that stuck with me. Of the films I saw that were kind of more that change of pace, that slower uh, emotional kind of pulling at the heartstrings movie. I think this one was the one that stood out to me the most. And there's there's one glaring exception to that that we'll have to uh, address later, but I feel like that's an exception to everything. So True, yeah. Yeah, I didn't even think of that, but that's a good point. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, so is it time to move on to the next one? Yeah, I think we can do your number two. This one is a little uh, not typical for when we do lists like this, but I just liked it too much and everyone's been talking about it nonstop. So, um, my number, my second favorite film I've seen this year is the Beatles get back, which is a, uh, documentary directed by, uh, Peter Jackson. I almost said Percy Jackson. (laughs) (laughs) The lightning thief himself. Yeah, The lightning thief directed this Beatles film. And you know, it is in his typical, uh, Peter Jackson ways. He did a trilogy because um, he couldn't make it a 10 episode miniseries uh and it is just uh found footage from the art from our archival footage of the beatles recording uh let it be and getting ready for the rooftop performance originally directed by michael Lindsay hogg for the let it be uh 1970 documentary which is very drab and not very fun at all or likable <laughs> at all but it is impressive how much this film crew was able to film, how much they preserved, the ways that they tricked the Beatles into thinking that they weren't filming. Um, they would do things like put tape over the lights on the cameras so they couldn't tell if it was on or not, or uh, hide microphones in rooms where they didn't think microphones would be. Uh, and, and then the Beatles caught on and would turn their amps up all the way and talk to each other while playing their instruments. <laughs> so it's it's a very fun back and forth between the Beatles and their typical crew and then the film crew uh, throughout the whole film. And you just get to see a very human and a very personal look at the four people who at this point were probably the four most famous people in the er- on the world <laughs> yeah. on Earth. And how... They're, how they were growing as artists and how they were growing in some ways closer and in some ways apart from each other as people. And I think there's this expectation that this era of the Beatles is drab and depressing and spiteful uh, because of the way, because of the rumors that were circulating at the time and the way they would talk about it in subsequent interviews. But you're watching this film and you're watching four best friends trying to who have been artists together their whole lives and now they're like somewhat uh paul and ringo are 28 um or no sorry john and ringo are 28 the youngest is george was 25 and they've done so much in their lives and he's and they're only 25 to 28 
and they're that trying to figure so insane <laughs> i know right they say that in the film and it's like oh my god <laughs> like and they're so they're just trying to figure out who they are as artists apart from one another and that's the mm-hmm. true story of the beatles get back and then also ringo just he isn't really he's just kind of being a goofball <laughs> <laughs> and like it all culminates in a the entire rooftop performance and which is basically uncut and interspersed with inner like small little interviews from people on the street about the Beatles and then the cops trying to shut it down just (laughs) sounding extremely annoyed and like they want to be anywhere else and it is so surprisingly like satisfying as a narrative and in some ways, it's a story being told. In some ways, you're just hanging out with them, and you get to see some of the most iconic and memorable songs in rock history being formed in front of you. And it's it was just such a blast to be able to hang out with the Beatles. And they just seem they just seemed so so. It was so obvious as to why they had the acclaim that they had because it wasn't just that they made great musicians; but they were also just really funny really likable people i love that i was gonna ask you like as someone who's not super into the beatles i mean i was when i was younger but not so much now like try and like sell me on it basically sell me on it as someone who's not a fan of the beatles and i think you just did that involuntarily right like i didn't know that they show the whole rooftop performance i feel like they maybe people haven't made it that far in this documentary because I feel like no one's talking about that. Everyone's talking about Paul creating get back, which I know is an amazing moment, but that's really cool that they show the whole performance. Yeah. And it's, um, there's so many, it's the little moments in the film, the little shots and things that they pick up that reveal so much about the Beatles. When the, when the cops get on the roof, Paul looks at him, smiles, sings like uh get back directly at or i think this one was don't let me down mm-hmm. and it's, it's singing directly at them like looking at them and and when he's when they, he's not singing he does a little dance just to piss him off and mm-hmm. it's it's so much fun or every time ringo ringo addresses the camera every time he notices it and there's <laughs> one part where he goes morning morning everyone morning 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 everyone <laughs> and it's these human moments that last uh, upwards of a minute, two minutes, that really make the documentary so special. There's one part where Ringo is get they get a music stand like uh, from the record label. It's a really bad like children's model one, and he's making it, and then he breaks it as he's making it, and then he just places a newspaper on it. <laughs> and then, that's it. Just this, like the thirty second part where he breaks the music stand, and it's or or there's one part where uh, they're reading tabloids. These rumors coming out, and George is making fun of it and being like, "Can you believe people believe this shit?" And one of them was uh, how uh, John and George got in a fist fight, which never actually happened. But as they're reading it, John jumps up and starts like fake punching George, <laughs> and then George starts fake punching back. It's just so obvious that at this point, like they're still they're still friends and they're still like a band and a unit and yes. there's so much. And it also reveals like how much of a part Billy Preston played and Mal Evans and George Martin. And you get to see these like legendary figures just 
trying to basically get together a concert that no one and an album that no one in the film knows is actually going to happen. And now we know <laughs> it's probably like the rooftop performance is probably the most important event in music history. Yeah. Or in modern music history anyways. Yeah. It's up there. That and when Ozzy Osbourne ate that bat, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Or when uh, Alice Cooper threw the chicken in the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I don't like, this thing has been talked to death and uh, picked apart to death. But if like I, even if you can't devote all seven and a half, eight hours, like with a hundred percent attention, just throwing it on, turning it like a YouTube video and just hang out with the Beatles. And it's, I no film really truly this time. No film will ever give me the experience. This film gave me where I can just feel like I'm in the studio watching, let it be, be made. And that is that's incredible. I can't believe it took so long for this footage to come out. Yeah. Feels like, well, now there never needs to be another Beatles documentary again, right? Like, we got the perfect one. <laughs> yeah, and I can't even, like, I can't imagine someone fictionalizing this. Because it's like, this is the movie. This is the story. Like, you yeah. can't do better than this. Yeah. Why would you want to, right? Mm-hmm. And if anything, watch the whole rooftop performance. Because it is a marvel. And like some of some of the rooftop performance songs actually end up on the album, and and oh, it does wow. it, it does this great thing in the film where it'll tell you when certain takes end up on the album or as like official releases. I love that. That's so cool. Yeah. So it's like the attention to detail that the editors and directors brought in is truly insane. Mm-hmm. Like I can't I cannot imagine the amount of work that they had to put. Like they made a program that can detect what a guitar sounds like or what a bass sounds like or what vocals sound like and then separate them all. So, like, you can still hear the guitar in the background when people are talking, but it's mixed super quietly. So you can actually hear, like, John or Paul or whoever. Yeah, they weren't able to hide like they wanted to from their from yeah. playing their music, right? <laughs> yeah, so there's this, great, uh, there's this great interview where Peter Jackson's like, I'm sorry, but we won. <laughs> Sorry, sorry, Beatles, but we we won in the end. <laughs> I love that. I love Peter yeah. Jackson. Yeah, he's great, and he's like, he has so much love for the Beatles. I think he says that like he cried when he first saw it because he was just like he finally realized that like oh these were good memories, like that were just yeah. tainted. Yeah, and it's such it's such a shame that it wasn't able to come out sooner. That that the Beatles. Uh, history had to be so murky before it could be before it could be corrected Mm -hmm. yeah well thank you ryan for going through all that i way you sold me on it more than anyone i've heard talk about it has thus far so i'm excited to um, eventually get into it yeah i think it's just if if you put the time in the film will give it to you in dividends yeah with that we're now gonna we're now gonna see some overlap because my number two film is your number five, the one we skipped. And that is Spider Man No Way Home. So I think I'll start off with this, uh, because it was a little bit higher on my list. My expectations for this film were sky high, right? Mm-hmm. I had skipped the later trailers but i did see the first trailer with um doc ock and willem dafoe's voice uh heads up 
This one I think we're going to spoil because if you haven't seen No Way Home at this point, it's your own fault. <laughs> Whereas I don't feel that way with like uh, Green Knight or Drive My Car or other smaller movies like that. It's um, also a film where the premise is a spoiler. Yes. So it's just it's just really hard to talk about it without talking about like the thing that makes it special. So knowing that premise and loving uh, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse so much like that's probably my favorite animated movie of all time my favorite spider-man movie my favorite everything (laughs) um seeing that this film was going to do something similar my expectations were sky high and i was still just completely blown away um i saw this as soon as i could in the theaters i think like thursday night at 6 p.m or something and it was the most fun i had in a theater all year it was probably the most fun i've had since Endgame because it's that similar energy of just room full of people just so excited to be seeing what we're seeing on screen now and not only that but the film is actually of a really high quality and it really smart in a lot of different ways yeah I think that's the biggest thing I would want to say is that knowing what this film was going to be leading up to it Uh, I was setting myself up for disappointment, but I was just surprised and blown away at every uh, turn, every different moment. I feel like I'm just speaking out of excitement right now, so maybe I'll gather my thoughts while, Ryan, you kind of share your opinion and why it fell in your uh, number five slot. Well, I think the most important thing going into this, and I sort of knew this when uh, when I went into it, but like this is the first event film blockbuster event film after covid like yeah, you're right there was black widow but i don't think people really talked about it in the way people talk about this movie and also i don't really like it so you know <laughs> <laughs> and uh there was no time to die but i think at that point people hadn't hadn't been as excited for a james bond movie as they might be under traditional circumstances so the fact that mm-hmm. this film is so is such an insane idea and it's like only one that exists in reddit forms pipe dreams <laughs> right like it, <laughs> yeah. like it's something that could only happen because a group of people who loved these films so much and loved the ideas of putting them all together so much just said screw whatever um logical problems we have in the idea of making it we just have to do it and the fact that they did it in a way that is as satisfying and like this this film fan service galore <laughs> this film yeah. is basically this film's mere existence is fan service uh <laughs> but it's never it doesn't patronize the audience there's a line here or there that's like oh that's a little did you have to throw that in but like I'm somewhat adds, a scientist myself. Yeah, but it adds to the whole absurdity of what you're watching, right? Yeah. We're like, I, I was just sitting there in a theater and I was like, I can't believe people made this and put as much money into it <laughs> as they did. Because it's like, yeah, these films are safe. And yeah, they're, um, but they have a plan and they have to have a plan to keep everything going. But this was the first time I'd watch a Marvel film and I was like, oh, I don't know where this is going to go. Yeah, yeah. Like I have no clue. I guess maybe Infinity War and Endgame 
I felt that way. But like this one, especially where it was like, I, I can't like, it feels like both a side plot and an extraordinarily important event <laughs> in this, in this universe. Yeah. Uh, and it's hard. It's, it's just, it's a per, it's a very personal story in the way that it tackles Tom Holland's growth as Spider-Man. Um, it is incredible to see these iconic actors and characters come back. And it's just it, it, everything you could have wanted and more out of a yeah. spider, out of uh, this Spider-Man movie. And also by the time that I went and saw it, I totally knew it was not, <laughs> it was not a spoiler at all. Like it didn't <laughs> feel like a spoiler to me anyways, because people would be like, people would say to me like, Oh, you haven't seen it yet. I don't want to spoil it for you. And I'd be like, I know they're in the movie and they'd be like, Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that's the thing if you know anything about this movie it should be that and that if you know that why haven't you seen it already yeah i was like pretty confident they were going to be in it but not certain and when they open up that portal and you see andy pop through who i love the raimi movies but i think andrew garfield's a better spider-man than uh toby mcguire personally seeing them pop through was just amazing right but i also think the story still revolves around the MCU characters. It still revolves yeah, around Top Holland's Spider-Man. And I think a big request I had for this movie was show me Spider-Man being good at being Spider-Man. And this movie did that, right? Because the first two, he's kind of still figuring out his ways. And in this mm. one, he's swinging around New York City, which he hasn't really done before outside of the end of Far From Home. He is able to beat the shit out of Green Goblin, which was simultaneously like amazing and utterly terrifying to see, especially with Willem Dafoe's performance. He just gets like happier and happier as each punch lands. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dan Gavazdan, who is, he was on the Slash Film Podcast, which is how I heard of him. And he is like the resident Spider-Man super fan. He knows like everything there is to know about the character. And he talks about how these movies were so smart because they tricked us into thinking that the origin story already happened, but in actuality, the origin story is this trilogy, right? Mm-hmm. You have Spider-Man getting his powers, um, figuring out how to use them, losing his mentors, turning to rage, and then rejecting rage and becoming your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, right? This movie ends with him on his own, in his own apartment, with the iconic blue and red suit and i kind of hope we don't get more movies because we know where the story goes right we can play ps4's spider-man we can go back and watch the raimi movies or even the mark webb amazing spider-man movies which i don't hate as much as everyone at least not the second one (laughs) (laughs) um yeah i just i can't believe they pulled this one off i think Obviously, the people who've been in the franchise, Zendaya, Benedict Cumberbatch, Jacob Bedlin, they all do a great job. All of their respective characters get satisfying either emotional moments with Peter, in the case of uh, Doctor Strange, or mm-hmm. expansions of the characters themselves, like uh, Ned being a, uh, a wizard. <laughs> yep. <laughs> or uh, I, this film made me like MJ the most out of any of these Spider-Man films. I haven't, I haven't seen the Sam Raimi movies in years, but at least the Tom Holland films. Uh, and 
in a weird way, I got to. I feel like there's been a redemption for Andrew Garfield. Like yes. people, people really genuinely believe that he was a great Spider-Man given so-so scripts, and yeah. that that feels as someone who grew up with those movies. It's just really nice to see the public opinion, and I imagine his relationship with the character change with mm-hmm. this film, and it really leaves the door open for what will happen with the Spider-Man franchise, or at least with this with Tom Holland Spider-Man uh, here on out, and that's that's exciting. I really fell off with Marvel, uh, to be entirely honest, but this film made me excited to see what they would do, especially with this character. Yeah, I totally agree with everything you're saying. Like, of the three of them, I love Tom Holland. I actually think Andrew Garfield's the best actor. Uh, mm. Having seen Tick, Tick, Boom, which I liked some aspects and didn't like other aspects, which is why it's not uh, in my top ten. Mm-hmm. But he is so amazing in that movie, and he's, he's honestly so good in everything. And let me just say, I think Ryan knows this already, but seeing him be able to save zendaya's mj you know this this universe's mj in the same situation where he wasn't able to save gwen stacy like i ryan let me tell you i wept (laughs) i was sobbing when that happened and i was i was just a mess i missed like the next three minutes of the movie so I'm so glad I saw it a second time because that time I only cried for like 45 seconds and I was able to pick up on more. But well, it's funny you said you said what I cried to was silly, and I was expecting it to be something really dumb, and then I was like, and then that happened in the movie, and I was like, oh okay, that's more reasonable than I would have thought. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's just these characters—they're glorified cameos, honestly. But they mm. also have mini character arcs. Like Toby is able to be this mentor to the two younger Spider-Men and uh-huh. able to tell Andrew, like, no, me and MJ, like, we made it work. And Andy is able to kind of finally, I hope, forgive himself for not being able to save Gwen as much as he could because mm. he's able to save um MJ. He's able to save Zendaya. And mm-hmm. they didn't need to do a character arc, a mini character arc for every character in this movie, but they honestly did. And it, it makes you feel more attached to not just the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man that you love seeing, but all three of them. And then every character in the movie, honestly. Yeah. And like, just to bring it back to that, um, one Aunt May's death was really powerful. Yeah. And the way that that was shot and the way that, um, Tom Holland, played the scene and the way that the characters reacted in the moment was very powerful. And like the way that it is very directly to his character's fault <laughs> yeah, in a weird, in a way. Yeah. And, and then also uh, at the end with Dr. Strange, who basically acts as like a mini antagonist for most of the movie, mm-hmm. uh, at least uh, in terms of being at odds with Peter. Yeah. The way that he like, sort of rationalizes having to forget who Peter Parker was. You you get to watch him try and cope with that, at least for that scene. And that was a really powerful way to end this character who uh, you think is going to kill Peter at any moment. Like, <laughs> just out of rage. Like, yeah. the way that he goes, just call me Stephen. 
at the end is so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I genuinely bought through Benedict Cumberbatch's performance and the writing that, like, this character was very broken up that they were going to forget who this kid was. Yeah, when he's like, everyone who loves you, and then he slips, he catches himself saying we, and it's like, oh, that's just, it's such yeah. a small thing, but it's so appreciated in a major blockbuster like this where, uh, you know, I think that's what separates the MCU movies from, like, Fast and Furious or even Bond is just the heart that goes into it. Um, and as someone who loves James Bond, loves Mission Impossible, I think the heart of the MCU is what makes it unique. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And you see those film franchises trying to do similar stuff that at least try and bring in those more heartful emotional elements that the MCU has, and it just sort of, they, they just aren't able to capture it in the way that um, the MCU has no spoilers for no time to die but yeah that's how i felt about the movies i didn't feel like the heart was the same as in a movie like this mission impossible fallout uh that movie has kind of the same theme as this one and i don't think it's a coincidence that that's my favorite of the franchise by a long shot right of like no we try and save everyone like that's our thing we're the hero and um, yeah. those movies didn't really have that heart before fallout uh the stunts are also <laughs> unbelievable but no i i i totally agree i know i could gush about no way home the whole time but should we move on to gushing about our number ones uh, yeah we both have the same number one <laughs> yes and probably not a surprise to anyone that knows either of us but that is bo burnham's inside so ryan i started us off for no way home why don't you kick us off for Bo Burnham's Inside? Um, This is a challenging film to talk about because so much has already been said. And it so says so much itself that like anything I would say would just be a distillation or a watering down of what the point, whatever point the film is trying to make. Um, mm-hmm. But I think the thing for me as a creator no matter what kind of creator or no matter what medium you work in watching this film, it, you're going to be, you're going to think it's absolutely insane that any human being was able to do this. And it's going to make you want to create. Yes. Like this is a film that like really pushes you to think like, what, what can I done? What haven't I done? What, what aspects of the world have bogged me down to the point where something like this feels impossible. And while I don't think that that's a theme necessarily of the work, perhaps as a theme of Bo Burnham's work, entire career is what people creating looks like and how that manifests in mental health issues and whatnot. But yeah, it's just a film that made me want to make stuff. And we are both extraordinarily big Bo Burnham fans. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm willing to bet that we've seen... I'm currently watching Zack Stone, so once I'm done with that... Oh I, my gosh. I, you have to tell me what you think of it. I love that show. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's very good. I, I like it a lot. It's finally on Netflix. Um, yep. But I'm only like four episodes in. But we, both you and I, once I've finished with that, I think we've watched almost everything Bo Burnham has had a hand in creating. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least from a writing and dir- directorial standpoint. So we've been huge fans of him 
you got me into him when I was in like a freshman in high school. But this is really the culmination of his work where he gets off the stage and he just has one room and he can do whatever he wants in it. And there's no limitations beyond what he can think of and what he can write. The, the unbridled creativity of it is truly remarkable. And in some ways, it's a movie about making a movie. Yeah. Um, as he's commenting, as it's being made, how long he's been making it, when he thinks it's going to be done, how he doesn't want to keep making it, how it's the only thing <laughs> he wants to keep doing. It's, it's a disorienting and claustrophobic and contradictory story with no clear or happy ending in sight. But it just, it meant a lot to me. And I think it spoke to an anxiety that almost everyone felt in during the pandemic, especially those who deal um, with mental issues and especially creators in a very strange, maybe not intentional way. Yeah, I I would 100% echo everything you just said. I love how you took it from the approach of how it makes you want to make things, right? I would say if I had to show someone who was cryogenically frozen and missed the whole pandemic one piece of media to encapsulate what this time was like, I would show them Bo Burnham's inside. I think this is a piece of art that needs to be preserved and put in a time capsule to capture the emotion of what these last two years have been like we're we're now approaching year three of this fucking thing (laughs) (laughs) and this this special captures the depression in that without being as exhausting as a subject matter like this can be right like it's Bo Burnham, so of course the special's also really hilarious and contains some of the best songs he's ever written. Some of the best songs of the year, to the point where um fucking Phoebe Bridgers is covering that funny feeling at her concerts now. And he's winning Emmy Awards and whatnot. And just the idea that this was performed, written, directed, edited all by one person in one room basically is absolutely remarkable you mention how we've been into him for a long time i just was with a friend who was like let's watch bo burnham's what and it ended up being probably the single most influential piece of art in developing my own comedic taste Mm -hmm. and that might still be my favorite special just because it holds such a unique place in my heart but this is without a doubt in my mind the most impressive thing he's ever done and that's saying something given his three previous specials which are all phenomenal a movie he directed which is amazing and was in my top 10 that year and a tv show that no one has seen but is absolutely remarkable and so ahead of its time we have a lot of favorite creators creators we most look forward to you know we've talked about some of them today Wes Anderson uh Timothy Chalamet I love Phoebe Waller-Bridge but like Bo Burnham might be the single most important creator most 
creator I look forward to their stuff the most of anyone working right now. Yeah, I remember when the teaser came out for this and I was like, holy shit, is this happening? Like, is this actually being made? Because I honestly believed he was never going to do another thing that even looked close to stand up. And, uh, you know, I saw what I enjoyed it a lot. I thought it was one of the funnier specials I'd seen uh, at that point. And then Make Happy was like an existential experience to me when I watched it, Mm -hmm. especially the last two songs, the Yeezus rap and um, the Are You Happy? Uh, Mm -hmm. I just hadn't heard i i listened to and watched movies that confronted mental illness and mental health but i hadn't heard but he's he does it so bluntly and so in some ways non-poetically yeah that it just it it hit hard when it needed to and when this special came out i i instantly knew this was the work best work he'd done in his career mm-hmm. i in my opinion i think that we were honestly debating if this counts as an album for the albums list. And if it did, <laughs> it probably would have been on there for me. Uh, it's catchy as hell. Someone's like, even like content comedy, white woman's Instagram, uh, how the world works is very politically apt. <laughs> um, yeah. Welcome to the internet. Yeah. All eyes on me. Look who's inside again. Goodbye. It's just that people have been doing punk covers of Bezos one and two. And those are pretty <laughs> amazing. Uh, I could list every song on here and say that they're highlights. So I I guess I'm just saying the whole thing is a highlight. (laughs) Yeah, I can't can't stress how important this was for me to watch when I watched it. Yeah. You know, the extent to which it's anything. Is it an album? Is it a film? Is it a comedy special? Like, the blurry, the grayness of it makes it an even more intriguing piece of art because... It is not easy to define in a way that none of those works have been easy to define, with the mm-hmm. possible exception of eighth grade, which you can call a film. <laughs> like, you can't call his comedy specials purely comedy specials. And you can't call them stand up, because most of the time you sing down. <laughs> and you can't call <laughs> and you can't call them uh and you can't call inside a comedy the extent you can call it that, there's no there's no audience, there's cuts, there's uh framing, there's a language that only film can use. Mm-hmm. It's just, yeah, I, it, it makes me want to make stuff. And like, that's, that is the highest praise I can give any piece of work is if I listen to it or watch it or read it or whatever. And I think I want to do that. Like yeah. that. I can't, I, I can't think of anything else. I, I would, um, any other higher honor I'd bestow anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this I saw this in theaters as well. It was in theaters for like one night only, and I went and saw it, and that was a transcendent experience. That's when I was like, okay, this is my favorite thing of the year, and it probably is not going to get knocked off. Yeah, yeah. And then I've seen it one time since then. Like, I don't think it's an accident that my two top movies are the two, the only two movies that came out this year that I saw more than once. Mm-hmm. Because they capture something about either where we are right now in a character's journey or like where we are right now as a society. And though they may tackle heavier themes, um, obviously inside more than no way home, but they do it in a way that is digestible and you're able to really attach yourself to it and 
just feel through the whole journey of this pandemic and then him making this special and you watching this special and Mm -hmm. just the whole process of it is really remarkable and really unlike anything else I'd seen this year. Yeah, and the special is equally about the, like, his mental health, the special itself and the songs and music he's creating and bits he's creating. And then also the, uh, like, the sociopolitical world that he's living in and how that Mm -hmm. contributes to both him, his mental state and the songs. Um, And so that is, it's the most political of his works, like, by far. Definitely. And it's just... It's just in some ways soul crushing. <laughs> like, it's, and, and you, you're just left to sit with that feeling. He doesn't provide an answer and he doesn't like sugarcoat any of it. You're just, you're just stuck inside with, with Bo. And it's, yeah. it's very claustrophobic. It's very challenging. And I think that it'll be looked back on as like, a, a film that could only exist in this time under these circumstances with these mm-hmm. platforms as the way that it tells its story. And also the fact that song, a song like that funny feeling or all eyes on me could easily end up on just an ordinary, like non comedy album, <laughs> like speaks to yeah. how much, has grown as a songwriter like i when i heard that my feeling i was like that that could easily be on a father Mon, father john misty or funnily mm-hmm. enough phoebe bridger's album <laughs> yeah so yeah and the fact that there's she's playing uh like huge concert venues where everyone's singing along to this song is like uh it's 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 nice it's it nice is. it's nice to know that uh everyone agrees that this is fucked. <laughs> yeah, it's um it's reassuring when it can feel like we're being gaslit a lot by the people in power, the people that put us in this situation. Mhm. Yeah, and I don't think it's a particularly hopeful piece of media, but I think the collective response to it in a way it makes me hopeful the way that it resonates with so many people and it's connected so many people to one another i think is kind of beautiful and maybe that's looking for something that isn't there but i think it's not only his best but like we've been saying it's his most important mm-hmm. yeah and i i i don't know what he'll do next i don't know if he'll do anything next for a while um, if he'll go back to filmmaking or if he'll try and do more comedy stuff, but I'm along for the, I'm a, I'm a fan till death. <laughs> Me too. Definitely. I'm very, very excited to see where he goes next. And it could be anything. It could be an interpretive dance, three hour ballet that he <laughs> uploads to Vimeo. And I would probably give it five stars because <laughs> I love him and he's, one of the most talented people working right now. It's that one video of Nathan Fielder <laughs> dancing to hits like that. <laughs> yeah, which is actually my number one movie of that year. So oh, funny okay, so it works that. out. Yeah, it's a fun through line there. Uh, all right, should we move on to the um, like likes that weren't movies or albums? 
Yeah, let's do that. So we talked about our favorite music of the year last episode. We talked about our favorite movies just now. Um, and then we have a few other things that just didn't fit into either category. I, For me personally, I have a couple video games and a TV show. So I'll start with the TV show, probably pretty predictable. One of the only 2021 TV shows I watched this year, but Squid Game. I feel like this series kind of is exactly not made for me because obviously it's like a four quadrant thing that everyone loved. It's like Netflix's biggest show, but something that starts out really fun and enjoyable and then transforms into something dark and makes you truly reckon with what it is, what it is doing and the society and economic structure that made this possible. I feel like I learned and was able to articulate things about this, um, very oppressive society we live in without it feeling like homework in a way and i'm very grateful that it's resonated with so many people because i think its themes are really important and we've seen these themes come out of south korea before with obviously uh parasite and then also from japan with films like shoplifters this sort of anti-capitalist uh undercurrent that's starting to affect these quote-unquote western nations in the east is something that's really powerful and something to watch for sure and i think squid game tackles it in the most entertaining way possible or at least entertaining thus far uh ryan you still have you checked this out yet or no i want to um it's clearly struck a nerve with people which makes me very excited in terms it just of the politics of it 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 makes me hopeful that People are starting to um, react to our power structures in a uh, more, let's call it revolutionary way. Um, yeah. I, I see so many articles that are like, and they're, they're almost always like made fun of and just then like destroyed by the time that I see them. But like, <laughs> it's like, is, North, is, is Squid Game really about North Korea? <laughs> it's like you would have had to miss the entire point of the show to write that article. But I think people are seeing through that bullshit. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, it makes me, I, I still want to see it. Uh, it makes me very, yeah, it just makes me very excited to see what, if people can properly critique <laughs> like the capitalist power structures in ways that aren't sugarcoating or band-aiding it and yeah. just confront it head first like inside does like inside does not make because because i feel I, maybe in the past there was a um with mainstream media that was attacking power structures there was almost an implication that it could be made uh better like avenue q or um a lot of post 9 11 stuff i think even dark knight <laughs> touches on this a bit but like yeah with inside with squid game with like shoplifters, like you mentioned, there's no presumption, there's no assumption that it can be fixed. Yeah. It just needs to be done away with. Mm-hmm. And that makes me very excited. Yeah, and one quote from Squid Game, uh, kind of to this point that I'll end on, is uh, from the Marble episode, where two characters are talking, and the one said, says, why did you come here from the North? She responds, I thought things were good over here. And so, were you right? And that's just kind of where that conversation ends. But I feel like that is so perfect and kind of puts the cherry 
on top of the overall theme of this this whole show. Mm-hmm. And then real quick to touch on the other two things, they were both video games for me. It Takes Two, uh, Bova got this for me for my birthday, and we played through it together, and that game was so much fun. Each hour, hour and a half, is like a different video game because your characters are constantly getting new powers and whatnot. And just the cooperative nature of it, the mini games that are, again, like games in themselves. You can play chess, you can play tug of war. There's a bunch of different stuff. And then the story, of course, too, is really uh, touching and heartfelt. This was just a perfect time sink in a way. Just turn off your brain for a little bit and play a really fun game with a good friend and enjoy the story with its unique characters. I cannot recommend It Takes Two Enough. Game of the year, actually. (laughs) Um, And then also Resident Evil 8, Resident Evil Village. I literally beat this game like two or three minutes before coming on the podcast, and I probably would have talked about it if I beat it or not because anyone who's talked to me in the last like three weeks knows that I'm on a huge Resident Evil kick, and uh, this game scratched that itch for me in a really awesome, unique way. I feel like these are actually puzzle exploration games and they're disguised as horror games, but I just love exploring these maps, unlocking new areas, slowly upgrading your character. So you start off with every single bullet matters and each time you miss, you're like, your heart sinks a little bit because it's like, well, that could be the bullet, that could be the missed bullet that kills me. But yeah, I'd say those three things, Squid Game, Resident Evil Village, and It Takes Two were the other standout things besides movies and music that I enjoyed in 2021. Yeah, I want I want to play Resident Evil 7 and 8 so badly, and I've only heard good things about It Takes Two, but I've not I have not played it with someone, so I'm gonna need to find time and a person to play that with. Mm-hmm. I have um four things. Uh one of them didn't have any like so two TV shows two games um, one of the TV shows didn't have a new season this year but I kind of just want to talk about it because I, I watched it and I usually don't try and bring up stuff before the year we're talking about but like it's just so good uh, first mm-hmm. one succession it is there is this one actually has a new season out this year it is very good and very funny and it is about a media mogul, the fifth largest media company in the world's like CEO who has declining health issues and um, his four, but really three children are battling it out for the um, opportunity to become the next CEO of the company. Mm-hmm. And that show is, oh, it's so, so juicy. And everyone is such a bad person. It is amazing uh and i don't want to i don't want to say too much just because there's so many twists and turns that the plot takes mm-hmm. and there's so many characters uh so many places the characters end up going that you don't expect but each episode just something happens where you're like oh fuck <laughs> how is this going to <laughs> what's gonna happen now and yeah i haven't had a show consistently surprise me like that in a very long time and the, the one that didn't have an update this year was uh barry which is about, uh, which is Bill Hader. He co-created it, and he's the lead actor. He plays a hitman turned aspiring actor, and that show is hilarious, very funny. 
I have not finished the second season yet. I have two episodes left, but the one that we left off, off on is gorgeous, amazingly shot. It's basically one long fight scene with like two breaks in the middle. Um, <laughs> it is rough, but it is like it is like violence and oh, but it's so good and mm-hmm. again very funny. Just the way that it used title sequences and cold opens. It's almost always as a punchline, and that's <laughs> yeah. Uh, it works, works so well. And the other thing on my list was a uh, two video games that we actually played together, and mm-hmm. I played with uh, my bandmates and uh, co-hosts over at You Have to Hear This. Uh, they're also just my friends. So, um, <laughs> but uh, Fall Guys and Phasmophobia. Fall Guys is this wipeout style video game with four or five mini games, and. You start off with 60 players, and at the end, one person wins. And each game lasts 15 minutes, and it is some of the most fun I've had playing a video game in years. It's just, (laughs) it's silly, it's colorful, it's animated. Um, Every costume isn't like, it's not a character, but it is your character wearing a costume, which I think is just adorable. Um, That instead of you getting Sonic the Hedgehog, you get basically a, a Sonic the Hedgehog like jumpsuit. <laughs> um, it's fast. It's easy to do something. It's easy to listen to a podcast or throw on music while playing it and, or just hang out with friends. And the fourth season is and the third and fourth season. And now the sixth season were like very good and added so much more content and so much playability to the game, replayability to the game. I, it's certainly not something I play as much as I used to, and I, it had a moment for me, but I can't recommend it enough. I think it's a blast, and the player base is still going strong. So, <laughs> And then Phasmophobia is a ghost hunting game uh, with proxy chat, so <laughs> the farther away people are, the less you can hear them. And that is, again, some of the most fun and most terrifying experiences I've had in the game. I would say it works just well enough to uh, be consistently uh, functioning, but it's mm-hmm. just glitchy enough to be very funny. So it's in a great sweet spot for a game to be where you never know what's going to happen. You never know what weird thing the game is going to throw at you. Um, the constant updating means that there's new items and new map details that you see that almost always kill you in some very funny, uh, very sometimes scary way. <laughs> but even even this far into the game, playing it after for months on end, it still surprises me, and I still have a blast every time I go in. I can't, again, I can't recommend this one enough, especially with friends. I cannot imagine what playing this game alone is like. <laughs> True. But yeah, I think it, that is also some of the most fun I've had in a game, especially a multiplayer game ever. It's just so it's so it puts you in this creepy mood. Yeah, it's just it's just a blast. If you have anything to add on either of those games. Yeah, I think I'll just say Fall Guys is very fun, but I'm terrible at it. (laughs) (laughs) But Phasmophobia, I've had so much fun playing with you, with your friends. Um, I play with a few friends from back home as well every now and then. And it's just 
it's so goofy but also genuinely scary (laughs) and it's all made by like one person i'm pretty sure which is just amazing it's so impressive It, it and like you think you know what the game's like and you're not scared by it anymore because you know what can ha- can't happen. And then some, and then some little thing happens that you did not know could be in the game. Like you hear a little girl laugh, and you've been playing for six months and have never heard this. Yep. And it is the scariest thing that could possibly happen to you. Like it, it's really great at taking advantage of small moments. Mm-hmm. Like there's nothing in the game that happens where I think, oh, this is. This is terrifying, but it's the whole atmosphere of it. It's the way that it holds on to its surprises. It's a game that fucks with you. To find a multiplayer game you can play with friends that's just so unpredictable is always refreshing to hop back in. Yeah. And to the TV shows you were talking about, just real quick, um, Succession, I'm probably going to start. I've been saying this for a while now, but now that I've finished the Resident Evil games, I think I'm going to jump into Succession and uh, Barry is definitely on my list now that um, you've talked about it with such high praise. Mm-hmm. I think I think uh, both of these shows, respectively, might be my favorite HBO shows, given one very important show's very bad ending. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. like, Succession yeah. is probably my favorite HBO show at this point, and probably one of my favorite shows, but... I, I gotta watch season three. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. I've only heard good things, though. I have only heard good things. Great. Well, I think with that, we can maybe start wrapping up. Ryan, you you mentioned this this beach tower thing. You have to <laughs> you have to hear this. What what is this? Uh, yeah, it's something I do. So I'm in two bands, uh, Beach Tower, with uh my boys Evan, Connor, Kaz, and Johnny, and Joey now. Um. It's sort of uh, indie rock, uh, whatever we feel like. And we just released an album on, uh, I believe, it was supposed to be uh, December 18th, but then it ended up coming out on the 23rd, whatever it's out now. It's called If We Make It to May. I'm extremely proud of it. We spent a good portion of a year making it and and recording it. And I think that our, the, the product of our labor shows... And then I'm also in a band with my friend Evan called Violent Graffiti. We released an album last year as well, back in May, called These Are Truly Our Last Days. Still very proud of that. Still return to it somewhat often. Uh, no longer on Spotify, so my Spotify rap doesn't get screwed up. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, and then I have a podcast called You Have to Hear This. That's been sort of in hiatus, just because we've all been very busy, but it's with my friends Lucas and Evan. And we just did our, or a few months ago, did our AGR extravaganza podcast. Mm-hmm. Absolute blast! People still tell me, come up and tell me that how much of fun that how fun that project was to follow. Uh, mm-hmm. That was great. And then we we were hoping to get back into swing things soon. We'll be all living together. We should be able to get the ball rolling on that. The AGR episode was so much fun. If you ever want to have me back on and not talk about AGR, I'm always open to it. If you're looking for a guest, yeah, I'd love uh, you to have to have you on for a regular for a regular not uh, labor intensive episode. <laughs> yeah, but um, awesome. Yeah, and I'd say for me, just go back and listen to Terry Talks episodes. We have our albums one. If you haven't heard that yet, albums of top albums of 2021. We have a Spider Man episode. Uh, where we mostly talk about the PS4 game 
and it was a great conversation, but it's also wildly out of date because it was pre No Way Home and Spider-Verse, which are now my two favorite Spider-Man movies. (laughs) (laughs) And then also I have a YouTube channel that I sometimes upload random gameplay clips to. I have a new Ghost of Tsushima one, some XCOM videos. So maybe I'll put that in the description as well. But nothing as exciting as a beach tower or violent graffiti. Oh, stop it. (laughs) Uh, I will say the the bracket episodes are like, in my opinion, some of the most fun I've had making this show or yeah. either show. Honestly, I, I had so much fun doing that. It was great to have the two worlds collide and uh, have us go on random tangent, random you have to hear this tangents and then you have to corral us back in and talk about <laughs> the actual albums. Um, yeah. So that was. If you want to go back and listen to those, I'm I'm still very happy with how those turned out. Yeah, those were a blast. A um, lot of preparation and work went into those, and I think, yeah, it ended up being some of our best episodes. Definitely some of the most fun to record. I will, I also want to end with saying that if you made it this far, um, I would really really support it if you could rate us on Spotify. So this is a new thing that they've added to Spotify where you can rate podcasts on a five-star scale. Um, It's super new. Not a lot of podcasts, I feel like, have even noticed that this is a new feature. If you could give us five stars. I mean, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, too, I'd love a five-star there. But um, Spotify in particular, because it's so new, so few podcasts actually have traction in this way. So it'd be really great to start getting feedback um, from you all. So with that, thank you so much for listening. Uh, I've been your host, Clayton Terry. I'm Ryan Terry. And we will catch you next time. Uh, oh, and that was, uh, you have to, you have to, what podcast is this? <laughs>